Our sermon text today comes from Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, We will be looking at verses 8 to 12 today in the story of Abraham and Sarah. Hebrews 11 verses 8 to 12. This is the word of the Lord. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Thanks be to God for his word. As we consider God's Word, let's pray together one more time. Father, you gave us your Word, and your Word is indeed a lamp to our feet, helping us to see even in dark places. So now, by the work of your Spirit, please help us to see Jesus more clearly, so that we may run well in this race you've set before us. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. When you look at this life, how do you see it? Optimists see the glass as half full, pessimists half empty, realists know that the glass is supposed to get emptied, but also know that sometimes you get free refills. Some people are nearsighted, some people are farsighted, some people have astigmatism, and I still don't have any idea what that actually is. But you do know that how you look at the world has a profound impact on the way that you live in it. Looking at the world at the end of World War II, Eric Arthur Blair, better known by his pen name, George Orwell, He saw little hope that English democracy could survive. After seeing the brutal power of Nazi fascism and the corrupting strength of revolutionary communism, he wrote the book 1984 in a mood of dark despair. He fully anticipated that there was going to come a day when humanity saw the destruction of the individual under the control of the few who pulled the strings. And with Blair's mind meditating on the horrors of Nazism and the long nightmare of Soviet communism, one of the most powerful antagonists in the book, 1984, summed up what Blair himself saw on the horizon. He said, If you want a vision of the future, 
Imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. For the early Christians who first heard this sermon that is the letter to the Hebrews, they saw the boot of Rome raised over their faces. And the sight of it was filling them with fear. Those who called themselves followers of Jesus were facing a future full of anxiety-producing possibilities. If scholars are correct about the, the date when this letter was written, those lavish night parties of Nero that were well lit by the burning bodies of Christians weren't far off. Because Rome's vision of the future did not include those who confessed Jesus rather than Caesar as Lord. And seeing that real and near future, the pastor understood that there were only two responses. He mentioned them back in chapter 10 and verse 38. He knew that one could either shrink back from Christ or a person could live by faith. Jesus could either be abandoned uh, for not being a good enough Savior, or people could cling to Him, the, the Savior who had suffered Himself. And they could keep trusting Him through the suffering that Rome might bring. And you understand, those same choices are in front of us today, because when we look at our families, our friends... Our workplaces, our schools, our country, isn't there a future full of anxiety-producing possibilities? And while we may not be confronted with the boot of Rome, we are still presented with a choice of either living by faith or shrinking back. And some may shrink back. We've seen that happen. But like the pastor expected from his friends then, I expect that you, too, will continue to live by faith. Because you, like them, have come to know and trust and rest in Jesus. You believe that He is God's final word to humanity. He's the Son of God sent to suffer so that He might be the perfect Savior for us. Jesus is our better Moses, our better high priest, the only sacrifice needed for sins, and, and holding fast to him. You already have access to God together. You're welcomed for Christ's sake as a people already cleansed, as a people in the process of being restored by his spirit to life as it is meant to be. be since we see Jesus in this way, we don't share Blair's vision of the future. Because in Jesus, we see that the kingdom of God has already broken into this world, bringing forgiveness of sins by the blood of Christ, bringing peace between God and, and those who cling to Christ by faith. And that vision of the future that God gives to us in Jesus, a, a bright and sure future that's overflowing with God's goodness, that vision both transforms the way that we walk through this world 
And it sustains our faith until Christ comes again to make everything new. Today's passage is actually aimed at both renewing our vision of the future, and as it reminds us that the best is still yet to come, and at the same time it helps God's people, both then and now, know what it looks like to live by faith until Christ comes. And so first, what does it look like to live by faith? What does faith do? How is it expressed? When the stories of Abraham and Sarah, we see three aspects of a lived-out faith. First, faith obeys in the face of uncertainty. Faith obeys in the face of uncertainty. Second, faith holds God's promises about the future to be at least as real as what we see today, if not more so. Holds the future promises to be as real or more real than what we see today. And third, faith relies on the promise maker to keep his impossible promises. Faith relies on the promise maker to keep his impossible promises. First, uh, look at verse 8. Here we see that faith obeys in the face of uncertainty. When God called Abraham way, way back in Genesis 12. Back then his name was Abram, but don't worry about it. We'll just call him Abraham. When God called him, the Lord said, Go. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Lord said, go. And what did this 75-year-old man do? He went. Trusting God beyond what his eyes could see, he left behind his land, he left behind his people, all of the the most important identity markers in the ancient world. He left them behind and he went out, verse 8 in Hebrews says, he went out not knowing where he was going. He went with his wife, his servants, his animals, and he traveled 900 miles, not knowing where he was going, but following the ark of the fertile crescent, holding only the promise that the Lord would show him the place and bless him there. It wasn't easy. Along the way, he buried his father. He had to deal with his nephew Lot, who took advantage of Abraham's generosity and and caused Abraham grief more than once. So often in his story, it was not clear how God would keep his promises. And and it's true that at times Abraham wrestled with unbelief. He took matters into his own hands in some deeply wrong ways. But he returned repeatedly to the same faith that he had when the Lord first called him. When in the face of tremendous uncertainty, he obeyed God's command to go. 
And in the same way, God has called you to go. To leave behind all other identity markers and to cling to Jesus. Because Jesus himself is your place of rest. He is your place of blessing. Life in his kingdom is the inheritance that God has promised to you. And like Abraham's journey, your journey toward your inheritance is full of uncertainty. You know that it's full of grief and difficult relationships. And those things can sometimes make us wonder how, how is God going to deliver on his promises of life and wholeness and peace. But in the face of your questions, God is calling your faith to be an active faith that still obeys him even when you don't understand. Because just like how Abraham was going to have to endure famine and long years waiting for that promised son, he had to endure war He had to endure a long walk up a hill with his son and wood and fire and knife. In the same way, God has not made any promises to you about your circumstances. But he has promised you an inheritance in in Christ. And already he's begun to bless you in Christ. And because he belongs to you and you belong to him, God has given you instructions about how to live while you await the arrival of his full blessings. He's calling you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's calling you to live together in those beautiful ways that we sang about, where we actually prefer one another. We put the interest of each other ahead of our own, in our marriages, in our family. He's calling you husbands to love your wives in, with the same self-sacrificing love that Jesus showed to his bride, the church. He's calling you wives to respect your husbands out of reverence for Christ himself. He's calling you children to honor your parents. He's calling you, his people, to live quiet lives and to work with your hands to the glory of God in whatever it is that he's given you to do. And you know that in the midst of all these calls that he puts on us, there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty We don't know what it's going to look like when we actually have to love another person and prefer them to ourselves. We know that there will be pain involved. But sometimes what we understand intellectually feels very different when we begin to experience it. And yet, as one writer puts it, faith enables us to accept those circumstances that we, find, that we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. He says God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment as not being right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom in our lives. For those situations are our life. What are the uncertain or confusing confusing situations in your life today? And 
Are you applying your faith in Jesus precisely there? Pursuing obedience to God's call, even if you don't know how it will go. Are you praying that God would strengthen you to answer His call faithfully? Are you asking for the grace to simply obey? Are you asking your wise and godly brothers and sisters for help to figure out how to live by faith? Because true faith wants to do the next faithful thing. We want the kind of faith that obeys, even in the face of uncertainty. We see the second aspect of a lived-out faith in verses 9 and 10. Uh, We see that faith holds God's promises about the future to be at least as real as what we see today, if not more so. Uh, When Abraham arrived in Canaan, he arrived, as we said, holding only God's bare promise. But just like a birthday present that your grandma promises she'll give when she visits next, just like that present is yours before she actually comes, Abraham knew that the land belonged to him even though it hadn't yet been given. He believed that every acre that he walked over, that he saw with his eyes, was his because God promised it. And convinced of this, the text tells us, convinced of this, Abraham lived a transient, nomadic existence, living in tents like a foreigner might, as did Isaac and Jacob after him. So he waited in his tent, which was a temporary home, until his permanent home would arrive. You understand, that's the the contrast that's being given to us. Abraham living in tents while he waited for a city that has foundations. It's a picture of permanency. Waiting for his permanent home, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham's faith was a living faith that was a waiting faith. He lived waiting for what was promised right up to the day of his death. All he would ever call his own was a single field with a tomb in the corner for his wife. But possessing that tomb, he he held it as a down payment on what was coming. His faith enabled him to hold on to that and to keep looking forward, seeing beyond what was fleeting to the solid certainty of a permanent city that is to come. And even in death, he was content for his body to rest in that same tomb in the corner of a field in Canaan until the city of God would appear. One writer said, waiting for God to provide them with that earthly inheritance, the patriarchs came to realize that this life is not an end in itself. This life is a pilgrimage toward a future that God alone can construct for His people. Have you come to that same realization? To the extent that we see ourselves today as pilgrims, looking for a better home than what we see today, we will live pilgrim lives. We will live as if what is now, all the pleasures of this earth, we will live as if what we see now is only fleeting and temporary. 
And that will protect us from being captivated by the allures of earthly comfort and pleasure. It's true. We can still enjoy our daily bread from God. We can save money. We can plan for retirement. We can plan for our kids' education as we're able. God is pleased by such stewardship and love. We may even enjoy wealth. We can enjoy extra comforts as gifts from the Father. But faith also remembers that we are passing through what is fleeting to what is permanent. And that faith enables us to live differently here and now. Knowing that what is coming from God is better than what is now, we can lay aside greed. And instead we can practice radical generosity. We can take care of our families and we can give sacrificially to others. We can forego treasures on earth and we can lay up lasting treasures in heaven because that, that place is where our heart really is. Because by faith in what God has promised through the prophets and through His Son, we believe that what is coming is more real, more lasting than what we see today. And what is promised to you in Christ is a place in His kingdom. He himself said that he has gone to prepare a place for you. Is your faith the kind of faith that helps you see your true permanent home with Christ to be as real as the house in which you will nap this afternoon? As real as the car you drive? When death comes for those you love or for you, Is your faith enabling you to hold God's promises to be more real and more permanent than death itself? Again, to express this kind of faith, we must be a praying people. Asking that His Spirit would give us clarity and strengthen us to live this way. And we would be wise to ask for help from brothers and sisters who can help us live in light of God's city that is to come. And so first, faith obeys in the face of uncertainty. Faith holds God's promises about the future to be at least as real as what we see today, if not more so. And finally, in verse 11, we see that faith relies on the promise maker to keep his impossible promises. There's actually a little bit of debate as to whether Abraham or Sarah is the subject of verse 11. The Greek isn't clear-cut. Personally, I think there's very good reason to believe that Sarah's faith is being considered here. But if you remember back to the story of Genesis, you'll remember that Abraham was old and Sarah was barren. On top of that, it says she was past the age of childbearing. Already the way of women had ceased with her. And so already, although God made a promise to these two about a son coming from them, from their very own bodies, that promise was, humanly speaking, totally impossible. Abraham, verse 12 tells us, was as good as dead. Not a picture of vitality. And Sarah herself was so old that she laughed when God first promised a son to her. And yet, even after that initial unbelief, laughing at the promise, her temporary unbelief, 
one writer notes, is concluded to have been replaced, succeeded, by faith. The main point of verse 11, you understand, is that she received power to conceive a son since she considered him faithful who had promised. What I'm trying to say is that whether the focus is on Abraham's faith or Sarah's faith, the point is the same. Faith looks past seeming impossibilities and relies on the promise maker himself to keep his promises. Here and now, there are so many of God's promises that still seem so impossible to us. Sometimes it seems impossible that full forgiveness for Christ's sake is real. It seems impossible that grace exists and persists toward people like us who keep on struggling with sin. Or it seems impossible that the kingdom of God is real and already among us. Or it seems impossible that Jesus is really coming soon, like he said. But when we remember that this God is the God who created the universe by his word, making what is seen out of nothing, when we remember that this God is the God who did not destroy our first parents in their sin, but rather made a promise to save them through the woman's offspring, when we remember that this God is the God who displayed his love and power by rescuing rescuing his people from an insurmountable power of Egypt, when we remember all the impossible things that he's already done in the story, then we'll be able to keep looking past our own impossible situations and we'll look at him instead. We'll rely on him who told us again through his son. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, we do have to be careful here. Listen, we have to be careful here. That we're not expecting God to do something more than what he's already promised to do. Like in my gym, there's a huge banner overhead quoting Philippians 4.13. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Bugs me to no end. Because I'm fairly certain that doing all things through him who strengthens me does not include me laying down and bench pressing 600 pounds. Too many people have become discouraged because they've expected God to do things that he's never promised to do. But we can always expect God to do the things he has promised, even when it seems impossible. Because that's the kind of God he is. He is good, and he is loving, he is just, and he is faithful. God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham is exactly what is in view in verse 12. Remember back in Genesis, God had promised to Abraham descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And closing this section in Hebrews, the pastor represents, presents those promises as kept. After all, the Hebrews themselves, the first audience of this letter, the Hebrews themselves are those descendants. The Hebrew Christ followers themselves represent the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. 
And up through today, those who have died, lived and died as descendants of Abraham by faith are as many as the stars of heaven and the innumerable grains of sand by the shore. Believers, beyond count, have lived by the same faith as we see in Abraham and Sarah. Obeying in the face of uncertainty. Enjoying God's promises as solid reality. Trusting the promise maker in impossible situations. So many have lived and died with this kind of lived out faith. But here is where you and I have to confess that we don't always obey in the face of uncertainty. We find it hard to hold God's promises about the future to be as solid as what we see around us. We're easily distracted people. We so often doubt the promise maker and believe either the lies of the enemy or we believe our own broken wisdom instead. Our vision of the future functionally becomes that of the stamping boot. And so we are either driven to despair or we are driven to grasping attempts for control of our lives or the lives of those around us. We do that in our marriages and in our families. We do that in our friendships and in our politics. We do that in our work and our play. We functionally shrink back from Jesus into lives of unbelief. Maybe for you it looks like seeking pleasure instead of seeking God's kingdom. Or maybe for you it looks like wanting power for yourself instead of relying on God's promises. And it is precisely here in our failure to live by faith that God meets us again with the gospel of Jesus. Because where you and I have faith that often falters, because our vision of Christ fades, God leads us back to Him again and again. And seeing Jesus, God restores our vision of the future. Seeing Jesus, He empowers us to live by faith once again. Because in Jesus, we see the one who obeyed the Father in every moment of His life. Even though He was actually certain about the misery and suffering that awaited Him, He walked the road of His incarnation in perfect obedience. He willingly set aside the the glory that he enjoyed from all eternity past as the Father called him to go and to rescue sinners by the sacrifice of himself. It was Jesus himself who lived here as an outcast among his own creation, as a foreigner in his own creation, in order that we, his treasured people, his inheritance, could be redeemed back to himself. And it was Jesus who considered that the Father would be faithful to do the impossible. That after his crucifixion for our sins, he would be raised from the dead by the power of God. It is this vision of Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith that gives us both grace in our failures 
and fresh strength to press on in faith. Because the Word shows us Jesus, who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And the joy that He saw was the joy of pleasing His Father, and the joy of rescuing you. And so solid was that vision of joy for Him, that Jesus was willing to even endure the agony of the cross. But as you see him now, not dead, but alive, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he who passed through suffering and death into resurrection, eternal life, seeing him there strengthens our weak knees and gets our hands ready for work. Because when we fix our eyes again on Jesus, and he becomes our vision of the future, then we can obey amid the uncertainties of this life. Because Jesus' resurrection life is God's promise to you about what is to come. And His real and solid body in heaven is the permanent foundation of your hope. And His Holy Spirit is the down payment on our new life with Him. But if you still struggle to see Him now, If your vision of the future still is as dark as Eric Arthur Blair's, then you've come to the right place. Because here in this room is another cloud of witnesses. Sometimes they see dimly, sometimes they see more clearly, but they see that this is not all that there is. Ask Jim Laird, if his hope is only in this life. Ask Leanne Coates why she can sing through days of sorrow. All is well. Ask Tom and Cindy what vision has carried them through grief. Ask Rodney Hodges how he's learning to obey God's calling on him at work, even when it doesn't seem like anyone else wants to. Ask each other, talk to each other about this vision of the future that God has given to us in Christ. This is precisely why we cannot neglect meeting together. We need to help each other see Jesus every day. But as we do this good work of helping each other see Jesus, we are helping each other live by faith. Because like Abraham and Sarah before us, we are still a pilgrim people called by God to keep trusting in Him, even while we wait. We wait for Him to deliver on all that He has promised. And although, for now, we are often poor, wayfaring strangers, wandering through this world of woe, as the song says, even so, we are walking toward a sure, a bright future, guaranteed for us, by the resurrection of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for this gift of your word. Thank you, Father, for the faith of Abraham and Sarah and for the encouragement that they give to us to look ahead, that Christ himself would form our vision for the future and we would follow willingly and joyfully and and obediently following after him. 
Father, strengthen us, strengthen our faith, and help us fix our eyes on Him and live in the hope that we have as Your people. Bless us this way, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.